you know, I've realized in this climate crisis, it's really about what's your your climate legacy. And uh, yeah, biochar is mine. Welcome to How to Stop Climate Change. I'm your host, David Butler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Russell, and my producer and daughter, Keaton Butler. This is part two of our series on biochar. Today, we're going to be speaking with Kathleen Draper. She's the chair of the International Biochar Initiative, the director of the Ithaca Institute for Carbon Intelligence, and she's the owner of Finger Lakes Biochar. She's also co-authored three books on the subject. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? As always, very well. How are you? I'm good. And what have you been up to? Um, mainly watching the news, lots going on in the world at the moment. But uh, one thing I did spot, which I think you will enjoy, um, I'm paying a lot of attention to COP26 at the moment because that's coming up in the UK in November. There's a lot of preparations going on for it at the moment. Would you like to guess how the UK government is spending most of its time preparing at the moment? I have no idea. Riot training their police officers, getting ready for beating thousands of protesters into a pool. Oh, I know. Do, I know. do <laughs> that's so unfortunate. So uh, I'm assuming they're anticipating climate protesters needing to be beaten. Is that what you think they're expecting? Yeah, it absolutely is. There's um, the Extinction Rebellion have a two-week protest going on in London at the moment, but it's relatively low key, not causing a lot of trouble, but. The authorities in the UK are expecting that there'll be a more concerted effort on the path of climate protesters to interfere at the COP summit in November. So they're spending a bit of time on, on that, preparing their, their police forces, if not their population or their voters. When you first mentioned uh, that they were training for riots, I was kind of hoping you were talking about a potential riot of oil and gas and coal executives who, who were going to be beaten up and hauled away in paddy wagons. Yeah, if if there's one group that has no fear of police or prosecution, it's those executives. But aside from that, on, with regards to the actual conference itself, I've been looking at the agenda and I've registered for one of the sessions myself. And what I got interested in is a session they're running on island space. So specifically looking at ro- remote rural island communities, given that I live in the middle of one, that seemed relevant to me. So uh, there's a lot of work going in there, a lot of sessions on how they're going to adapt to climate change, the vulnerable populations within them, a lot of work on energy storage and transport in those sort of communities. But one of the things I've also liked, and I I see a lot of, is focus on the economy, Uh, green transformation of financial systems, building in regenerative agriculture practices, building a circular economy, a lot of life cycle analysis on it as to how green technologies can become built into economic models. And while I'm talking here just about the islands, it's nice to see those thoughts and principles being applied in general to what's going to be discussed at COP26, because that's just inevitably necessary if we want to see serious change happen at an economic level anyway. Yeah. That, that sounds very interesting. A lot of great topics there. 
Yeah. Well, what have you been doing in your free time when you're not obsessing about climate change? Apart from that, the only other thing I've been doing is almost the exact opposite, which is gardening. And considering how much time I spend in the outdoors and how much I love it, it's remarkable how much I hate gardening. Um, no, matter, <laughs> no matter what way I try and do it, it's work. I can't believe people do this thing for a hobby. But uh, one thing it has left me with is a lot of green waste. And I think you've been doing some research as to how that green waste can help us. Yeah, well, of course, you know, you can always uh, leave it on top of your garden and use it as compost and or mulch to help keep the soil covered up. But yeah, you're right. I'm really fascinated with um, the idea of turning organic waste or waste biomass into biochar. So I've been doing a lot of research on that. And I even uh, made a couple of batches of biochar myself for my uh, compost pile and for my garden that I started also during COVID. And I've been wildly unsuccessful at gardening. And I have um, I have like a couple of tomato plants that I, I got out way too late. And, um, you know, I would see a tomato coming along and then next time I would go outside, it would be gone. And I realized that I have, I have a chipmunk that started, you know, just went ahead and built his burrow right next to my tomato plant. So he just wakes up in the morning, scratches his belly and climbs up and steals one of my tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can still call that a win. You're supporting local biodiversity in your area. I guess so. I don't know if we need more chipmunks, but I certainly <laughs> have them. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into our conversation with Kathleen Draper. Great. Hey, thanks for joining us, Kathleen. We're very excited to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. I'm so fascinated by biochar and it has so many uses. You know, we covered a lot of those in our previous episode, but we want to talk to you today about which uses are most significant for fighting climate change. You know, where do you think biochar can make the biggest dent? Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about that recently because of the the newest IPCC report. And, you know, historically, the market that biochar has focused on has been agriculture. And I'm still a huge proponent of, of using biochar in soils, especially soils that are either severely depleted of, of carbon or have toxins that biochar can help immobilize. But I think focusing on agriculture has been a huge challenge because of the, the cost issue. And as a new industry, you know, the product is expensive and, and the value proposition has been complicated by all the variables involved in their agriculture. But I personally have been looking at its use in different composites, such as concrete, um, asphalt, different uh, bioplastics. I think there's a huge need to, to look at it more broadly in terms of how it can help uh, displace fossil fuels in, in different materials and how it can help store carbon beneficially above ground and not just below. If I'm understanding you correctly, Kathleen, that is to say you're looking at the moment of it being used almost as an, as an aggregate or a bulking agent when being used in construction, for, for example. Have I caught you right there? 
Exactly. So depending on what you're looking at, it's either an aggregate or sometimes called a filler. So we're displacing things like sand, which is, you know, you think ubiquitous, but we're actually mining sand at an unsustainable rate. Uh, so if you can displace things like that or even displace part of the uh, Portland cement, which is responsible for six to eight percent of global emissions or in, say, uh, I used it in my wall in my office that I'm sitting in right now. It displaced a little bit of plaster, but also sand. And in, in biocomposites, it can displace mined materials such as calcium carbonate, I think in a very cost effective manner. And it can also reduce um, some of the negative effects uh, that mining uh, has on our environment. So I suppose when you use biochar to replace another material, biochar has a negative carbon footprint in a way. And then the material that you're displacing has a positive carbon footprint from the the mining and the transportation and everything is, is that part of why that's important for climate change? Absolutely. Yeah. It's both the reduction and the removal. So we're starting to see that language used a lot more in the carbon markets and, you know, carbon offsets used to be about displacing fossil fuels and renewable energy and things like that. But now I think we'll start to see other materials like biochar uh, and wood biomass um, displace some things that we're using in the built environment, which is which is great from both perspectives, removal and reductions. And am I overstating it to think that the goal would be that were I driving down a highway in the US and it was six lanes across, that I would know, or if I cared, but uh, that there is a layer of biochar built into every square meter of that for the hundreds of miles it might run. Excuse me, mixing up my measurements there. But... Um, that we actually just get into a position where, as, as you say, some of that filler is removed, replaced by biochar, and it could be deposited, I'm, I was going to say hundreds, but we're talking about millions of metric tons could be applied across something like a road network over time. Absolutely. And I hosted a webinar a year or so ago uh, about the use of biochar and asphalt, and since then there's been a lot of interest. But the, the person I was speaking to was using it in Australia and other places in Asia, and he was claiming that you could put up to 30 tons per kilometer of road in a cold mix asphalt, which is something we don't use very much in the U.S., but it's more common in, in hotter countries. But not only that, you could put up to 300 tons of biochar in the subsurface below the asphalt as a, a stabilizing mechanism. Uh, so, you know, we're talking some pretty high numbers. Uh, the, the trick will be to find the biomass to turn into biochar uh, to, to use in those um, situations. But in those situations, unlike in agriculture, we can use a, a lower quality biochar. In other words, it can have some contaminants that we would wouldn't necessarily want to put in the soil for growing uh, food. So yeah, we're going to, I think, start to see uh, sewage sludge biochar used in, in scenarios like that. So in these types of applications where you're adding biochar to other ingredients, how does it affect the engineering qualities or you know the specifications of the product? Can it enhance it actually? 
Yes, to some extent, but we're still really at the early stages of that sort of research. So what we're learning is that different recipes are needed, but even different types of biochar in, in terms of particle size, but even chemical makeup are, are having different effects on, say, concrete, asphalt, and plastics. So things made from, say, rice husks or rice straw might have a high silica content, which is great. Uh, but still, you may only be able to use it up to, say, 2%, 8%, depending on the end use of the concrete. I'm working on a really interesting project with a fellow by the name of Mark Mersman, and he's putting it down old abandoned oil wells in two different ways. One is in the concrete at the bottom of the oil well, and I think he's gotten up to 8% uh, biochar in the concrete. But then there's this layer where they have just, there's fewer regulations as to what you can put in that 15, 17, 1800 square feet of, of the drill hole. And previously they were putting clay, they were looking at hemp, but now he's starting to mix biochar in there, which would be a great carbon sequestration pathway. We don't necessarily need the highest grade biochar there, but we do need to understand what is, is you know, the compression strength and things like that for that particular end use. And what is the cost of, I mean, I realize the cost of biochar can be all over the place, but how would it compare to something like sand or clay? Yep, that's the big question. And as I said, it's very variable um, biochar out there. And when we're looking at sewage sludge biochar, we're still in the early days. I wouldn't be surprised if they end up giving it away uh, like they do with sewage sludge. Uh, well, actually, they, they usually end up paying to have sewage sludge removed. Um, but th that's because of very variable qualities, which relates to the very variable qualities of what's going into a sewage treatment center. Um, but also the carbon markets right now are changing the, the economics of biochar in a big way so that we're going to see the price of all biochars probably fall uh, in the next year or two. They've been falling already because of these, because the, the income from the carbon finance is, is quite substantial um, and, and looks good in the foreseeable future. I'd like to come, come back to that in a moment, because I think that's fascinating, both the carbon finance thing and the sludge and a couple of the other bits you mentioned. But um, just sticking with those wells for a minute, and accepting where the industry is right now, and let's call it, I think you used the term low quality, and let's just say that, that I'm using a low biochar to plug a well. In that instance, how much carbon are you actually taking out of the carbon cycle, even with this relatively poor material? Yeah, so the carbon math is is also a little bit variable. It, it depends on what how much carbon is in the original biomass. So when you're talking about something like sewage sludge or manures, as compared to say wood, it's it's on the lower end. So your biochar might end up only having thirty percent carbon, and then it's got a lot of minerals left in it. Whereas the carbon content in a woody biochar could be 80 to 95%. A lot of that also has to do with how hot you are cooking the biomass. So the hotter the temperature, the higher the um, carbon content because you're burning off more of the volatiles. But when you think of, okay, I have a ton, let's say of woody biomass that's 
90% carbon, the way you convert from carbon to CO2 uh, is generally the, the, you know, the multiplier is 3.67, but you have to subtract from that any emissions generated through the carbonization process. And that varies by technology. Um, but then you also need to think about um, in the life cycle assessment, the emissions from getting the biomass to the plant and then the biochar to wherever it's being put in. But generally speaking, the, the multiplier is somewhere between two and three. Um, so that'll give you for, let's say, a thousand pounds of carbon in biochar that's 2,000 to 3,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Okay, so that's, a, that's a, a magnificent figure to talk about just as a rule of thumb, that that much carbon is being taken out of the carbon cycle every time we use 1,000 pounds of biochar. Yep. So I think one of the really exciting things about carbon markets starting to take off is that it's a it's a much easier way to motivate people to do something if they can make a profit off of it instead of um, trying to get regulations passed. And I do feel that we obviously need more climate regulations. You know, I, I don't think that the free market is going to solve everything, but how many carbon markets are starting to accept biochar? And is there a lot of work to do on measurement and monitoring and and those kinds of things to get biochar to be an accepted carbon removal technology for the markets? So that's moving pretty quickly. The first uh, market to recognize biochar as a removal product was a small startup company in Finland called Puro. And the um, NASDAQ just recently, I think a couple of months ago, required a acquired a majority interest in Puro. So that, that's a vote of confidence right there. And at the time, there were only, I think when they launched in 2019, there, they only had three products on their platform. Biochar was one. I think low carbon cement might have been another. And the use of wood in building materials was a third. And you can go to their uh, website, it's puro.earth, and check out the individual sellers of these different products. So for the biochar category, they might currently have a dozen uh, sellers. And then you can see, I think now they have cellulose and building materials. You can see the difference in the pricing for these different removal categories. And biochar right now is one of the highest. Again, it's variable even within the biochar category, but it's somewhere between let's say 60 euros to 150 euros per ton of carbon dioxide equivalent, which again, convert that back into tons of biochar. And, and that's a significant amount of money. And then in 2020, Carbon Future was a, another startup that uh, has adopted what's called the EBC, European Biochar Consortium C-Sync methodology, which is a blockchain verification system for biochar removals. And they're selling right around 150 euros per ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. And then just prior to this podcast being recorded, I was on the Vera 
uh, webinar, which is announcing a 30-day comment period on their biochar protocol. And I know in the U.S., there's another carbon market that just got funding from the U.S. Forest Service to develop another biochar protocol. And there's rumors that the gold standard is also developing one. So it's really taking off, and it'll be really interesting to see how this develops. But demand is there. We know Microsoft, Spotify, Shopify have all purchased biochar-based removal credits. And apparently the demand is growing. So it's an exciting space to be in. Yeah, where I can see a, a demand coming in, and this might be more European focused than it is in the US, but uh, we have very strict limits set for carbon emissions across the EU. And I can see a role for biochar in infrastructure, particularly public or public-private partnerships with heavy industry, where governments start to try and sequester carbon in that environment to try and mitigate the fines or alleviate them as much as possible that will come because they fail to meet their carbon targets today. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people looking for decarbonization pathways in the short term right now, and they're not as many, even on the biochar front, there's not as much production as demand, apparently, um, because it does take a year or two to get up and running and permitted and, and all of that stuff. And I think one of the barriers right now is even, even if you're producing the biochar, you have to have somebody buying it for a use other than fuel uh, in order to get those uh, credits. You can't just produce it and get the credits. It has to be sold to somebody putting it in the soil or putting it in composites. I was I was quite taken about your comment earlier on, like myself and David should probably think about doing an episode one day on what's happening with the global supply of sand and the fact that you might be able to mitigate that with biocharge is a big help, mining the same. Sewage sludge is another one that, that uh, like I speak to a lot of people working in wastewater treatment plants and you ask them about what they do with the waste and they've all sorts of wonderful ideas, but when you get right down to it, it ends up buried in a hole someplace, assuming they don't incinerate it. Um, but that is the case for Europe, the US, places that have good infrastructure. Probably about 80% of the world doesn't have any wastewater treatment at all. And I appreciate there is a cost to the infrastructure of putting a biochar plant in. But is there a model where that could be applied in developing countries almost as a matter of course as they develop water treatment plants or is that a step too far at this time nope it's it's already happening uh the gates foundation several years ago funded a really interesting um biochar uh, project under their reinvent the toilet uh scheme and so they put a small-ish scale carbonizer over in india in a village of say ten thousand people to convert sewage sludge into biochar and that's been operating for quite a while. Um, the, the technology was actually a U.S.-based technology from biomass controls in Connecticut, uh, but they have now um, contracted, I can't remember the Indian company, but they are going to be churning out these small-scale production technologies uh, a lot more efficiently over there to address that very need. And I know they've been looking at markets in India as well. And I'm working on a project with Cornell University where we're taking that same technology, which is which is geared towards higher uh, water content uh, feedstocks. We're looking at putting that on a small-ish dairy farm in New York State to do the same thing. We'll be right back after this short break. 
If you think global warming is bad, just listen to this. The global referral rate for businesses is only 2.3%. Yikes. Luckily, ThumbsUp is here to change that. ThumbsUp is a referral system designed to help businesses leverage their customers' social media with almost no hassle. With ThumbsUp, you can create a personalized post for your customer, allowing them to celebrate their new purchase or service while endorsing your business to all their connections. Your post becomes their post, and then all their friends and family can see your hard work through your customers' eyes. Visit getathumbsup.com. Thumbs up. Referrals without asking. Kathleen, just taking a step back again, you mentioned that biochar has been referred to in the IPCC report recently, but I think it's actually appeared um, in 2018 as well. And I'm conscious that maybe not many people, in fact, we know not many people are talking about biochar in the wider industry, hence why we're doing this podcast. Do you think that reports will help build awareness of biochar or what other steps do we need at this stage to help building a viable industry to start bringing biochar out into the mainstream? Yeah, so the 2018 report, it was the first to my knowledge that the IPCC had directly acknowledged biochar as a significant contributor to uh, uh, removals. That was the first time they talked about the need for removals, and then they identified a handful of potential removals that are able to help rebalance carbon. And interestingly to me, you know, since then, they've kind of split into natural carbon solutions and technical and biochar or pyrolysis, it it could be both. Uh, But ever since then, we've started to see a lot more focus on on biochar, especially in the carbon market side. But yes, we went from this position of, you know, 99.9% of the population never having heard of it to this stage now where those in the sustainability world have heard of it. Um, if you're outside of sustainability or climate change, you probably still don't. But it's it's never ceases to amaze me where we are seeing people that are coming to us and, and wanting to learn more about it. Uh, but things that have really helped um, in the U.S. anyway, <clears throat> last year, the USDA under the Natural Resource Conservation Service created what's called the Soil Carbon Amendment Protocol. It's also called Code 808. And that is a program where farmers are eligible to receive payments to put either compost or biochar or a combination of both in the soil, specifically to increase soil carbon. So There were up to 20 states, I think, that adopted it. But now we have the Biden administration very interested in putting uh, biochar, you know, on the agenda, not only for the agriculture, but but we saw in a recent um, uh, grant call that it's in the Department of Energy. So I think at least in the U.S., and we're behind on, on what the Europeans are doing, we are starting to see more. Uh, more interest. I think it's due to more desperation, uh, sadly. But it, yeah, but I do think that the the biggest barrier is education. People don't know what it is or how to use it or how to make it. You know, we're we're trying to fill those gaps, but it's a, a big gap to fill. So Kathleen, what is the potential for biochar? You know, when you think of all the different climate solutions, how big a piece of the pie could biochar be? 
So my answer is is a little different than some of the answers you will see published out there by the IPCC and by Drawdown. They kind of include it in the, I think, 0.8 to 1.8 gigatons per year realm. That tends to focus only on agriculture, that is putting it in soils. And so as we've talked about, there's, there's all these above ground uses. It also doesn't include certain feedstocks like uh, seaweed, which is an enormous possible biomass, and sewage sludge. Again, you know, we're not optimizing the use of that material at this point. And so I think it could be much more. How much it is, I don't think we really know the answer. There have been a few studies out of China, and I recently read one out of um, Washington State, trying to get that number a little bit more clarified, but I think one of the things we need to really understand is what is the available biomass? And by available, I mean, it's not already spoken for for something else. Um, because there, what we learned recently in a project I was on with the Drawdown Initiative is that there's a lot of biomass out there, but it's already spoken for. An example of that is in Minneapolis, one of the cities we studied, um, their sewage sludge is, is pre-contracted to go to an incinerator for you know, I don't know how many more years, but until and unless that incinerator goes out of operation, you're not going to get that that sewage sludge going to a pyrolysis system. And so I think there's there's a lot of unknowns out there that it would be really great to put some effort into um, getting more specific information. So, Kathleen, we, we've discussed the scope here quite a bit, and it's enormous. And there is an industry growing that will hopefully develop to fill that scope. But you've also mentioned some of the limitations, particularly the availability of feedstock, etc. Is that what's holding up the growth of this industry? Or is it scaling the equipment? Or what do you see is going to help build up this industry as that feedstock becomes available? Yeah, so th- there's plenty of feedstock available, what I call unloved biomass. Uh, I think for me right now, one of the one of the real barriers is having the economics and the business model worked out where where we know where that biochar is going. So with sewage sludge, uh, you know, can we give it away? Is there somebody that will take it, or do we have to landfill it? Which is still not a bad thing to do with biochar, even if it's sewage sludge biochar, because you know, it's better than putting sewage sludge there, but you have to, we really have to pencil out all of the, the co-benefits and, and what is, you know, the, the net cost with the carbon markets, with the heat energy. And so we need more demonstration plants. There's, there's an interesting one going up in Linden, New Jersey right now. They are carbonizing sewage sludge and on, on a massive scale, supposedly 440 tons per day input and only five tons per day output. It's a very low carbon kind of biochar, but it's going to a concrete manufacturer if all goes well. Um, and, And their business model is based on the upfront tipping fees. In that case, they probably don't need to get much for the biochar, but you know it varies by every single feedstock. Uh, so we we need more examples like this and people that are willing to share the business model behind it before we'll see it scale, you know, vertically and horizontally. It seems like we're in you know we're in such dire straits right now. <laughs> the new IPCC report came out yesterday as we're recording this and. 
I would love to see a situation where it's kind of, you know, a systematic requirement that waste biomass either goes to an anaerobic digester or it's converted to biochar and it can never go to a landfill because we've really got to reduce our methane production for one thing. So we can't be burying things like food waste and sewage sludge and and just letting them turn into methane. How long do you think it would take us to get to a situation like that? I mean, we people are horrified at the thought of more regulations, but we already have loads of regulations about, you know, water treatment and, and uh, what you can do for public health. This is really no different. We should not be burying organic waste. We should be getting every little last bit of energy and nutrient and, um, and product out of it. So how far away do you think we are from something like that? <laughs> I, um, I wish I could say five years, but it really depends on the regulatory framework. I live in New York State and we now, I think it got pushed back a year due to COVID, but we have an organics to landfill ban coming up uh, for, for the large scale generators. I think it's a ton per week or more. And so they're all desperately looking for options. We don't have that many anaerobic digesters. We certainly don't have many incinerators and, and many of them are closing down, thankfully. Uh, so yeah, I think I think in this situation, we're going to see adoption happen quicker than maybe in other states where they don't have those kind of policies. Um, yeah, again, I, I know the Biden administration is very interested in their latest infrastructure bill. They have set aside 200 or 300 million dollars uh, to help with fuel reduction in out west and specifically making biochar from that fuel. So if that gets passed, we're going to see, you know, a lot more push for biochar on the education front, on the uh, developing markets front. So, you know, a lot of it is policy related, but a lot of it is is investment related. You know, with this carbon finance coming on, we're seeing a lot of people kicking the tires that I, I had not heard from previously before this year. So it's hard to predict. Um, it, it could go really fast. I, the trajectory over the last year has been phenomenal, but putting up a plant is not without its own complications. We have the different technologies out there, but some of them are being imported from Europe or Australia, and, and they have to go through the own, their own hoops with the emissions and, and regulations here. So, you know, if you wanted to start a, a decent sized plant tomorrow, it would take you a year, a year and a half. Yeah. So, well, it's better than a nuclear plant anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. And, and to ask the question from, from a market-driven perspective, if I was part of an agricultural co-op and we'd been told that the soil in our region needed to be improved, and I'm, I'm guessing that that's the sort of thing that needs an agronomist to be involved because it could be quite technical. But let's say we've, we've had somebody involved, we've got our advice or otherwise. Where does one go to buy 100 tonnes of biochar? Uh, the U.S. Biochar Initiative has a directory that you can access for free, I believe, on their website that many of the U.S. biochar uh, folks, producers are listed there. Uh, you can obviously go on on um, on the web and find many producers. I think what we're lacking is uh, we have standards. The International Biochar Initiative has biochar standards, but what a farmer doesn't understand 
yet, in my opinion, is first, they they do know what their growing constraints are, and that's very variable. So it could be out in California, the big focus is on water efficiency. And so the type of biochar that could be used to address that is probably different than the one that is used to address other problems in soils, say, that, you know, have contaminants from, you know, old fire coal-fired plants. So we we need to have some level of education on what biochar can and can't do because it's it's not a panacea for all growing constraints. And in some cases, it makes financial sense and in others, it doesn't. <laughs> and the U.S. Biochar Initiative is trying to work on this and so is the European Biochar Industry Consortium. And there are other biochar industry consortiums in, in other parts of the world that are trying to do this education, but we need the help of the land grant universities. We need the help of, you know, the, the environmental protection agencies. We need the permitting people to, to jump on board. The forestry folks in the U.S. are very on board. They, they have funded the U.S. biochar initiative efforts for the last few years. So, yeah, I mean, funding is a huge issue to get that sort of thing out to the various stakeholders. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk us through, I suppose, the technical and strategic aspects of biochar and how it's used for climate change, and again, to talk as well through the industry. But this isn't how you started out, Kathleen. What brought you into the biochar industry and what keeps you engaged in it? So I uh, had a midlife career shift uh, about a dozen years ago, and I went back and to do a master's in managing for sustainability. And I, through that process, was reading pretty deeply on what biochar is and what other solutions are out there. And I ended up selecting biochar because I could understand that over some of the more technical solutions. And I grew up on a farm and I'm actually living back near the farm now. Uh, so I, I thought, yep, this is one I can grab hold of and, and understand. So I did my thesis on that. And then I ended up switching into the biochar industry very naively. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a very interesting ride. I had no idea how new it was 10 years ago when I jumped in. But uh, what keeps me motivated, I, I tend to um, work both at a very local level with local universities here, undergraduates from the Rochester Institute of Technology, from Cornell, from the University of Rochester, on different biochar-based projects. And when they come in for the semester of the year, most of them have never heard of biochar. But by the end, they get really enthusiastic. And I learn a lot in the process. And then they they often go out and, and spread what I call the biochar guide. Uh, to others that, you know, I think might not ever have heard of it if we hadn't gone through these different projects. And I'm working on a project in Colombia and possibly in the future in Peru with smallholder coffee farmers where we're turning their residues into biochar and using it to filter the effluent in their milling operations and then replacing fertilizer with this charged biochar. And just to be able to have the experience of helping these smallholder farmers out, you know, in different parts of the world has been super fulfilling for me. It gives me hope. And yeah, I, <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of things I never would have anticipated I would do, like writing a few books and, you know, attending the International um, Conference of the Parties uh, on behalf of biochar. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's been a, a very interesting life pivot. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic uh, career crisis 
switch. <laughs> so I bet you don't regret that in any way. No, no. The financial rewards have been uh, 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 far less. But, you know, I've realized in this climate crisis that is so insignificant. It's really about what's your your climate legacy. And uh, yeah, biochar is mine. Maybe you get this when you're talking to your graduates. They are undergrads who've come in to do sustainability anyway, so they're highly motivated. Um, when you're talking to them, what are the big triggers for them that really get them up in the morning to get out there and, and move on? And, and what do you say to them as part of the gospel to, to really move them on in that, in that regard and, and inspire? Well, most of the climate news, as you all know, is super depressing. And a lot of the proposed solutions are far away. And so, you know, for me, biochar gives people hope. It's it's scalable. I call it safe, scalable, and shovel-ready. And, and we're just at the beginning of learning how to exploit carbon in a good way as opposed to the bad way. You know, uh, you know we've, we've learned over 100 years how to exploit carbon from the ground. And now we're learning how to how to exploit it, photosynthetic carbon for our benefit, for the benefit of, you know, biodiversity and, and improved water. And it's exciting. I think we we should have gone down this path 100 years ago, but but we're here at the precipice and there are solutions that can give us hope. And biochar is one of them. Very well put. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. That was a great conversation. And I feel better about the world than I did this morning after looking at the IPCC report. <laughs> well, do you know what I say is, is biochar is my superpower is, you know, I think it is good to have something that you can give people hope with and, you know, all is not lost yet. David, thanks very much for getting Kathleen in. That was fascinating. Really enjoyed what she had to say. A lot of diverse topics associated with biochar for my benefit and the benefit of our listeners. How do you think people can best support this industry? Well, I guess it really depends on where you live. You know, you you might be able to buy biochar for your garden or for mixing with your compost, but you might not have it where you are. So I think just try to learn more about it and keep your eyes open and I think it's a really exciting technology. So you could join the International Biochar Initiative if you're really interested in it. And if we see anything of interest, we'll keep our audience updated. Yeah. So I'll let you get back to your uh, garden drudgery. Oh, I can't wait. Anyway, thanks very much. <laughs> and I'll leave it up too. All right. Thanks, David. Talk soon. Thank you, Matt. If you'd like to learn more about Kathleen and biochar, you can check out her blog at fingerlakesbiochar.com. Follow her on Twitter at biocharo, that's B-I-O-C-H-A-R-R-O, or email her at biocharo2, that's the number two, at gmail.com. Music for this episode was provided by Audiosnack. Let their team take your project to the next level with professional made-to-order songs at affordable prices. Find out more at audio-snack.com.